Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to this place and that this is your church. And we pray that um, we would not just uh, look to Paul as an example, but that we would be so consumed by your Holy Spirit that we might be given over uh, to his leadership and his presidency uh, in our lives for our good, but above all, for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I thought that this was a good time to... Uh, I never, ever want to stop a Bible study uh, in order to tackle um, something that is not rooted in the Scriptures. And so I thought, well, but this is actually a really good passage in order to talk about uh, the visioning process. But we're going to start in Acts chapter 27, but eventually we're going uh, to uh, shift over to Ephesians chapter 4 uh, because it shows Paul's leadership uh, in the midst of of uh, controversy and chaos. And so what we have here in Acts chapter 27 is Paul sails for Rome. If you remember, he's appealed to Rome and he's on his way to Caesar. And it's a great story. Uh, sit down uh, for three minutes and read Acts 27. And immediately as they set off from Caesarea Maritina, they uh, find that the wind is against them. So they're having an attack all over the Mediterranean. And things are not looking good. And since, this is verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter and the and the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend uh, the winter there. The word of the Lord. All right, so this isn't the last time that Paul engages the people aboard the crew, and it actually gets to a place where it gets so bad that they're willing to listen to anybody, even a prisoner, uh, because it turns out that Paul is absolutely right uh, in what he's saying uh, will, uh, will happen. It's counterintuitive, uh, and they uh, want Paul to mind uh, his own business. And yet Paul, because he has this burning in the bones, and quite frankly, you know, if I were Paul, I would say... I hope we get shipwrecked. Uh, I hope that everybody else on the boat dies except for me. Uh, and uh, not only will they get what they deserve, uh, but their last thought before they go under the waves is, he was right. And I want everyone to die thinking I'm right. Uh, and so, uh, but Paul doesn't because of his great love. He says, no, 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 I, I care about, uh, I am, Wesley had this great, phrase, uh, John Wesley, uh, when someone asked him what his sphere of ministry was, and John Wesley said, the world is my parish. The world is my parish. And so what you see in Paul's ministry is no matter where he was, he ministered to the people that God had given him to love, even those who had put him in chains. And so he's now become uh, not just a prisoner, not just a passenger aboard this ship, but he's become what? Their chaplain and pastor. Right? And so he's actually caring for not just their souls, but actually their physical lives. And Paul is constantly pleading with them and having a ministry rooted in compassion, 
trying to get them to say, stop looking at the storms and stop looking at the circumstances and listen, uh, listen to the leadership of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, that, those are more nautical uh, conversations. Uh, so let's see what it looks like in the context of leadership in the midst of the storm and the life of a church. Because here you're be dealing with non-believers, uh, but in Ephesus you're dealing with believers. So I'm going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 11 through 16. We're going to skip over the part about what does it mean he ascended in order to uh, descend. I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, here's Paul writing from prison, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And he gave, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Well, one of the things that we see in Paul's ministry is it's marked by a great humility. Uh, part of it is because Paul, above all, feels uh, that he lacks uh, certain gifts in order to lead the church. And here in the church of Ephesus, which was in some turmoil, and it was centered around the personality of preachers. And so you had some people saying, well, I like Paul, and others, I'm with Apollos, and yet others, I'm with Peter. And then the really super-duper Christian said, well, I'm with Christ. Uh, and, uh, and you had these factions breaking out within the life of the church. And so Paul's writing to the Ephesians uh, to talk to them about what their unity is in the body of Christ, even in the midst of disagreement. In fact, uh, if you uh, were two or three Christians are gathered together in Jesus' name, there's going to be disagreement. Right? That is an absolute given. And Paul says that here in Ephesians 4. The thing is, how do you deal with your differences? How do you deal with your struggles and differing opinions? About two years ago, um, I've been the dean and rector for about two years, uh, I was really convicted uh, in my prayer life because uh, I really realized that uh, this position is a real blessing. I already knew that. Uh, it was funny when someone asked, well, being your age, uh, after the Advent, where do you go? And someone who was eavesdropping said, Elmwood. <laughs> uh, you go to Elmwood uh, is where you go. And if you wanted to look at it from a worldly perspective, that person was right. Career-wise, this is kind of where you hope uh, to, the, to end up, and yet here I am uh, at my age. And I just want to assure you that not a day goes by where I don't feel my inadequacy. Uh, or I, I, 
not a day goes by where I don't feel like uh, I'm in uh, over my head. And the propensity of someone in that position is to look around them and to see, you know what, I could just keep it between the ditches. Uh, I could just kind of coast along and, and let things go the way that they're going, and, uh, and I can uh, chaplain uh, the congregation. Uh, and I would know that what that would mean is that we would, uh, if we were growing, we would plateau, uh, but we would be moving uh, to a slow uh, but steady uh, decline in membership uh, if we just said we're going to try our hardest just to keep the things the way they are. And so God very much impressed upon my heart uh, the fact that I've been called to lead and I've been called to pastor. Now, one of the wonderful things about the Advent is that I'm not one of those who thinks that there needs to be some sort of radical change uh, to the nature of the Advent, uh, who we are and and what we're about. But like any big organization, uh, we need to take a look at uh, how we do ministry. If you've ever been part of a business, uh, you've probably done a visioning process in uh, the context uh, of your business. And the visioning process came out of not so much that we felt like we didn't um, have any idea where we were going or what we wanted to do, uh, but simply I really felt uh, that God was uh, saying, Andrew, you, you don't have all the answers. And actually one of the things that I hope comes out of this visioning process, and we're going to get to this later on, is that is that all of us uh, feel a sense of ownership, of stewardship, of the ministry that God has given us in this place. Uh, That it's not just the domain of a select few. Uh, But the decision to lead comes with consequences. I was reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Paul talks about presenting those whom I shepherd in Christ. Because when that day of judgment comes, those of us who pastor... Don't present only ourselves to Jesus on that day. We're not accountable just for our own lives, but those whom we pastor. And so to that end, what will be the verdict on that judgment day when I'm called to account for 3,600 souls? That's overwhelming to me. That's a task that that I I can't do on my own, uh, and yet it's real and At the same time, yes, I'm aware of God's grace, but it does not allow me to disregard the task at hand. The 1662 ordinal uh, has a wonderful phrase to those who are being ordained. The bishop gives the charge, and the bishop says, you are to be a messenger, a watchman, and a steward of the Lord. It's like Lord of the Rings language. You're to be a messenger, a watchman, and a steward of the Lord. Uh, You're not called to simply be a chaplain. You're not called to be maintenance because that's exactly one of the problems that we have in the church today. Uh, People just hope to break even. But we're to be active in being messengers, watchmen, and stewards of the Lord. Charles Wesley uh, has a great hymn that captures uh, this idea uh, when he was ordained. A charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, a never dying soul to save and fit it for the sky. To serve the present age, my calling to fulfill. Oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Arm me with jealous care, as in thy sight to live. And oh, thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account to give. Help me to watch and pray and on thyself rely. Assured, if my trust betray, I shall forever die. And so what happens when pastors become messengers, watchmen, and stewards of the Lord? 
the sheep get into conflict. It just happens. It's a natural byproduct of ministry. And we see that there in Ephesians chapter 4. But how do we deal with conflict? Uh, Paul doesn't say, well, you just need to sit them down and set them straight. And there are times in which that is most certainly called for. But as Paul writes to Second Timothy, uh, to Timothy in his second letter, chapter 2, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, be patient, in meekness, instructing those who, that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance, repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Uh, so it's not Paul on the Mediterranean saying to the crew, quite literally, you can go to hell. Uh, but actually, Paul realizing that I would much rather you dislike me right now and think that I'm crazy in order that we might rejoice together in heaven rather than for you to think that I'm a nice, kindly passenger aboard doing what you think I'm supposed to do in order for you to die in a lie. And so that's what pastors are called to do. And look, I'm a firstborn. I hate it. Uh, I don't like it. I would much rather everybody say, oh, how wonderful Andrew is and how great he is. But that's not God's call on my life. And so... We set about in this visioning process, and it wasn't because we were at any crisis. In fact, we were at a place of strength. We had looked at our statistics, and it's very easy to think uh, that you're doing okay. It's a little bit like the frog in the pot. And uh, what we've been looking at statistically, we've actually been looking at our average Sunday attendance from year to year, rather than looking at it decadently. We weren't looking at it, where were we 10 years ago? Because what we found was that actually when I arrived, as the, when I became the dean in 2014, yes, 2014, we were already on a decline. We had plateaued around uh, 2007 and, and we began to decline uh, ever so slightly. I mean, very imperceptibly. We're not talking about huge numbers. Uh, but also what we found is that our average Sunday attendance was about what it was 10 years ago, and yet our budget had doubled. Now, the good thing is that, well, praise God, y'all are very generous, and God is working in your hearts, and there's a lot of good ministry going around, uh, but we realize, you know, we've, we've got more money than we've ever had. Our stewardship has never been better uh, at the Advent, and yes, we're on an uptick statistically uh, when it comes to our worship, but are we being good stewards of what God has given us? Uh, are we functioning more like a cruise ship, or are we functioning more like a battleship? Now, I don't like that um, image, because I like cruise ships. Uh, and, uh, and quite frankly, I want to be the guy hitting the, golf ball, the biodegradable golf balls off the mat, and, uh, and sitting up on the deck chair, and having somebody bring me a drink with an umbrella in it, and then, you know, going to nice ports of call. That's what I like. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that what Paul says here in Ephesians is that the ministry is not the sole domain of not just one person, but the professional Christians, but it's everybody. Uh, that the work of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, that it's actually up to the church, the body of Christ that Paul references here, to do that work. And there's no, big too, no job too big, nor is there any job too small. Right? Elsewhere, Paul would say, you know, does one part of the body say to the other part of the body, I have no need of you. 
Now, some of you feel like the gallbladder. Maybe even worse, you feel like the appendix. Right? You feel like maybe you don't offer anything. And if you do, it's something that is negligible, that can simply uh, be removed. But quite the contrary. Uh, God says that in his word that it takes all of us uh, working uh, together. Uh, because if you just have, uh, who got, uh, Ted Williams got frozen, didn't he? Uh, so there's Ted Williams' brain, which most of us would say is probably the most important part of the body. Uh, how's Ted Williams doing these days? He's got a great brain. But he didn't do anything. Why? Because he needs the rest of his body functioning together uh, in order to do that which he's been given to do. And in the same way, that's the way the church works. Now, uh, I want us to look at um, two uh, of our uh, statements that came uh, out of our uh, visioning process as we continue to embark. And the first is uh, our identity. Uh, the Advent is a church with a living, daring confidence in God's grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then two, the Advent exists to proclaim the freeing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples wherever God has placed us. Now, isn't that radical? I mean, it, it, what it does is it simply describes where we already are, doesn't it? Uh, but the question in the vision process is what does it look like uh, to flesh these things out? Uh, how is it that we equip members to make disciples wherever uh, God has placed us? And what does it look like for us to live out our identity as a church with a living, daring confidence in God's grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so we have uh, varying areas in which we thought these are the areas where we need help. We need help in communication, outreach, shepherding, which is our pastoral care ministry, uh, worship, discipleship, and ministry development. And I'm going to go through those very quickly. One, uh, communication. It's impossible to communicate with you people. It just is. I mean, the number of times someone will come up to me and say, well, I didn't know that. And it's been running in the Adventurer for over two months. It's been mentioned in classes. It's been mentioned uh, during uh, announcements. Uh, it's been uh, on the website. And so <clears throat> difficulty in communication uh, is a given. But one of the things that I hope will come, if, you know, if I could say, what do I want the Advent to look like in four years' time or five years' time after this visioning process? One, for communication, that we will have the arrows in our quiver that will help us to effectively communicate with one another and effectively communicate the gospel. That's it. Do we have the means by which we can effectively communicate to one another and effectively communicate uh, the gospel? When it comes to outreach, that we will be a church that is known for its ministry to the city and beyond, uh, that we will live into the call and remember those who have gone before us who have had a disproportionate influence in the city of Birmingham by God's grace. Now that's not an arrogant statement, that's just a fact of the matter that God has used Advent in a very special way since the founding of Birmingham and by God's grace that will continue uh, to do that. And shepherding, that we will deepen our care for those whom God has given us to love. Uh, Craig Smalley does an amazing job. Uh, and we've always done It's amazing how few things slip through the cracks uh, at the Advent. But I will tell you this, the clergy are the last to know. Uh, so when you think that the clergy know that somebody's in the hospital uh, or, uh, or something is going on in someone's life, uh, we're the last to know. 
Uh, and so what we see and what we hope is a continuing development of understanding that it's our job to care for one another, uh, not just that it would rest in one uh, individual or multiple uh, individuals. And in worship, that our worship would not only be a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, but a sharing in the word of God together, that any impediment to the gospel might be removed in order that we might clearly hear and see the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's the task given to anybody who's ordained in the Episcopal Church uh, who's become uh, a rector. Now, the last two areas, uh, discipleship and ministry development, because I know the worship area is going to get a lot of attention uh, when we talk about that. But I think everything that we've done in this visioning process and will continue to do is very important. Uh, But the two areas that I think are absolutely essential and key are discipleship and ministry development. Discipleship, equipping the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry, that's discipleship. But two, in ministry development, to ensure that the day that I uh, accept the position at Elmwood, uh, that there is somebody to step into my shoes. Uh, There is not a week that goes by where I actually don't think of my replacement. Now you think, well, you're so young. Uh, But if we're going to look for someone uh, to take over uh, for me uh, in the years to come, we need to think about that now. And not just me, but the the other clergy. And not just the clergy at the Advent, but those who will serve in the Episcopal Church. Uh, Because it's becoming more and more difficult for us to find clergy who would be compatible uh, with the Advent uh, in the wider church. Which is why our searches have gone international uh, in scope. Uh, Because when Frank Limehouse was here, everybody was ordained in the Diocese of South Carolina. Well, that pond's closed. Can't fish there anymore. And so it was hard when Frank was here, but it's gotten even harder as those places where we were getting our clergy from uh, become unavailable to us. And I don't think it's okay for us to just sit back and say, uh, well... Uh, we'll just see what God does, but actually the mandate that God gives us to raise up those in our midst so that in decades from now they might actually come back uh, and serve uh, among us and pastor us. Okay, so those are the areas. Uh, and um, some have wondered, well, there's an ulterior, there's a, an ulterior motive uh, to the visioning process. It's an end run to justify decisions that have already been made. Look, there are a lot of things that I'm going to do that I don't need the visioning process for. A good example of this would be men's ministry. I really feel that this is an area in which the Advent is inadequate, that we don't have a men's ministry that is on par with what we do for the women. And so I don't need a visioning process to say, get to work on that. So be assured, that's already an area that we're doing and working on in tandem uh, with the visioning process. But if you're wondering wondering what nefarious things Andrew and the others are up to, (laughs) here they are. Here's what we hope. Desired results. That we achieve clarity in our unique identity. Uh, What does it mean to be the advent in this place and in this time? Our purpose. Our ongoing major priorities. How decisions are made. Uh, in fact, one of these things, you know, I know that some of you feel that you've been left out of the process and some have felt that the 75 to 100 people that have been involved in the committee work is some arbitrary ranking of Adventists, uh, that you feel like surely you were top 100 uh, and you didn't make the cut. It actually has nothing uh, to do with that. Or if you feel like there's an inner circle that is running the Advent, 
if you find out who that is, please tell me where the Illuminati are meeting. Uh, because I don't know who they are. In fact, one of the problems in the, at the Advent is we're such a big place that there's no consistent mechanism or process whereby we make decisions. And I think that that's problematic. And so actually what I want to see is for us all to have some sort of comprehensive way that we can, as the body of Christ, make a decision together. Because there are some things that I don't think I alone should be deciding. And I don't think that there are things that just the clergy and the senior staff should decide. Now there are. I'm not going to bring to you, do you think we should do this dental plan or this <laughs> dental plan? In fact, I shouldn't be making that decision. That's why God has sent us Brian Hill. Right? <laughs> Uh, because Brian knows what he's doing in those areas in the same way that we would actually have the humility uh, and the spirit within us to say it takes all of us and we all need to be a part of that. So that's one thing, how decisions are made, uh, how we assess current effectiveness and potential improvements. Uh, so, so we used to have and still do, we have ministries that once existed for people, uh, but now the people exist for the ministries. And so how do we deal with those ministries? Uh, how do we determine what we do and how our mission uh, manifests itself in the life of our congregation? What is the role of staff and parishioners in ministry? And what is the optimum alignment of resources uh, with our purpose? Does our budget reflect our priorities? Does it? And so we are looking to achieve unity through a shared conviction and commitment to the vision of ministry that the process has revealed. Which up to now, I, I hated to say it, but when I was looking at some of the stuff, I turned to go crack and I said, it's kind of vanilla. Uh, there's nothing actually terribly radical uh, coming out of this, but I think that that's actually evidence that God is working in this place and that he's saying you're headed in the right direction. Uh, you're headed in the right direction. Now, does that mean change? Of course, uh, there uh, will be changes. And I hate change. I'm very conservative by disposition. The way this manifests itself best is in my wardrobe. And Lauren will often say to me, that shirt, those shorts, let me have those. <laughs> and I will buy you the exact shirt or the exact pair of shorts. Now, I know that I'm in big trouble when Lauren starts wearing them uh, to bed uh, because her pajama drawer is the hospice care of my wardrobe. <laughs> I know it's on its way out uh, at that point. And I fight it, but I know she's right. It's the same shirt. It just doesn't have frayed cuffs. And, fray and you know what? I get that new shirt, and I have it for about five, six years, and Lauren says, it's time to get a new shirt. And I'll think, but I love this shirt. Right? And this is the very shirt that I didn't want five or six years ago. Uh, but, you know, so you actually have to change in order just to stay uh, the same. But, of course, all of this is not without the Holy Spirit of God. And so my prayer is that the Advent would be a church where people talk not only of the beauty of the liturgy, the quality of the choir, or the soundness of the sermons, but that we would be overwhelmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit of God when we come into this place. Uh, that we would not be a church that just believes in prayer, but a church that is so captivated by a God who is mighty to save that we're driven to our knees in prayer. And we must be in earnest about it. If we believe that we can continue to have the vibrant ministry we have always had, even then we have to change. But I'm not talking about maintenance. I'm talking about the Advent answering God's call to witness to the world. 
Charles Simeon, the great rector of Holy Trinity Church, Cambridge, in the 19th century, had an assistant named Henry Martin, who after serving a couple years as assistant, Simeon grew to love him as a son. But Martin felt the call and he went to be one of the first English missionaries to India. And while Martin was there, he died. And Simeon was completely distraught. And so after his death, someone commissioned a portrait of Martin to be made that was to be given to Simeon. And Simeon hung it in his study for the rest of his life. And when he was entertaining guests, he would always look up at the portrait and say to his guests, There, see that blessed man. What an expression of countenance. No one looks at me as he does. He never takes his eyes off me. And he always seems to be saying, be serious, be in earnest, don't trifle, don't trifle. And Simeon would continue almost to himself, and I won't trifle, I won't trifle. And I echo that. I've been ordained to be a messenger, a watchman, and a steward of the Lord. And by God's grace, I'm not going to trifle. Because God has given us a charge to keep. And for us to all, as the body of Christ, to work together in order that God might bring many more sons and daughters uh, to glory uh, and into the fellowship of the church through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so that's the visioning process. And I'm going to stop because I've already gone over my time, but that's typical for me, and open it up to any questions, comments, and concerns. Anybody want to work the... Uh who wants to work the remote for me? Where's the one day David Tanner decides to buzz off? I'm sorry, 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 I'm so that the rest of the crowd would understand where I'm coming from. You know that Margie and I have always had some serious, some serious concerns with the direction in which we're going. Part of my problem is reflected in the old country song, we're looking for love in all the wrong places, or we're looking for answers in all the wrong places. My anecdotal experience tells me from chapel services that I've conducted, one of the main strengths of the idea is the fact that we do hew to the traditional Episcopal worship. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I interviewed two young men at Jeremy Parish, uh, say a Christmas party, who said their sole reason, their main reason for coming to the Advent from the Baptist Church, from the, Bap- from the Methodist Church, and from the Catholic Church, amongst four, two couples, four people represented, was the strength of the worship service and the tradition that was reflected here. There are a great number of us, and unfortunately, you see some of that going away. And while I understand that we need to have change in life, we need to be measured in our change, and we need to be very careful that we do not make such radical changes that we lose our sense of identity and purpose, which you've identified that we need to keep. Can you can you articulate what some of those changes are that have troubled you, where you see us going in a radical direction or away from our moorings? I quite frankly, as a as a cradle Episcopalian, I would, you know, some of you here know this, most maybe most of you don't. I was baptized here in 1940, and I see the changes in the morning worship. I see the changes in the Holy Eucharist. 
Can you be specific about what those changes are? We have abandoned the pattern of prayer and process and have given up on the What what it, I need I need you to be specific as to what it is that is With troublesome. The prayer, the, the prayer of consecration has been altered. Yes. From the book that I'm traditionally accustomed to, it was reflected in 1878, 1928, and a number of other traditional prayer books. Uh, we have changed the prayer of consecration. We have reordered a number of the locations. And, you know, if I had a prayer book in front of me, which I didn't bring, I'd be happy to sit down and iterate yeah. to each and every change that I has, have seen made. Yes. I know this confused me. It has confused my wife. It has confused my son, who is, you know, one of the millennials that everybody so objects to. My son just said quite frankly, I don't know where I'm going to church right now. Yeah. Okay. It is so different. Yeah. And he was a traditional Right. So here's, here's an issue that has come out of the visioning process, and I hear what you're saying, and I honor that, Coffee, and you have done a great job of communicating with me, and I think that that shows uh, a marked appreciation and respect and, quite frankly, an affinity uh, for one another, and so I'm grateful for that. Uh, but the changes that we've made, one, we've already talked about this in the past, but I think it's worth saying again, an apology for not managing those changes better. Uh, but really, there's only been one change to our morning worship, and that has been the abbreviated Eucharistic prayer, uh, which doesn't go back to Oliver Cromwell. It postdates him. It's the prayer from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which almost the entirety of the Anglican Communion uses, with very few exceptions. And so I feel that, well, I know, any of the changes that we've made in our morning worship, whether it be the confession uh, that we use for morning prayer, uh, have not been innovative. They've actually gone back in time. Uh, we've actually become a more traditional church uh, because of those changes. Uh, but again, I hear a lot of people saying that they don't like it and they feel, but I have, I, it's, it seems to me that people in coffee, I hear you saying this, that it's more of a feeling that you have uh, rather than anything uh, concrete. And I understand that anytime we change our morning services because we're Episcopalians, it's difficult. I mean, the Advent didn't go over to the 1979 prayer book uh, until the mid-80s. Uh, and, and even then, it was the peace. Uh, the Advent was ready to rebel over the peace uh, because nobody wanted to acknowledge anybody uh, there on Sunday. Uh, but, uh, and, and that was hard. But the other thing that I would say to Coffee is that the traditions that you and I mutually hold dear uh, are, um, are already gone from the Episcopal Church. Uh, we're going to be getting a new prayer book, and Rite One will not be a part of that prayer book, and you can guarantee that it will be something uh, that as a steward, as a watchman, as a messenger of the Lord, uh, I, I can't and won't uh, allow uh, that type of dishonorable worship uh, in this place. So I want you to know that I am committed to the liturgy of the church, and so long as I'm here at the Advent, uh, the Advent will remain in the prayer book tradition because it is part of who we are, and I think that that is one of the great hallmarks and selling points of the Advent. Right. And would you, on that point, would you connect those dots that the, the leaflet 
doing the way we're doing it, expandably for handing it out to make it more approachable now, but yeah. also helps prepare for if there are changes that don't flow, that don't fit the theology of the way yeah. we're set up now that that helps right. us. Yeah, I'm a bibliophile. I'm a total bibliophile. I mean, I, I really think that there's a positive psychological connection that happens when you're holding a book and, and reading from it, uh, which is why I don't like screens. Uh, you know, I know some people don't like them for aesthetic reasons, but I actually like them because I think that there's something about reading together and, and singing. Uh, I go to churches with screens, and everybody's singing to the screen. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, there, it, it, it just, it, it, I think that there's a dynamic there. So that's, that's one thing. I, I do want it to be in print form. But yes, I, I think that it is a, uh, some people are worried we're getting away from the prayer book, but actually our move to this, uh, without my daughter's art, uh, is, uh, is a move toward the prayer book and to assure, ensure that it remains uh, here at the Advent. Uh, because I don't, I want to make uh, the pain as slight as possible uh, when the new prayer book comes in the next several years. And we see we've already, we're already talking about it now. So by the time it arrives, we will have already been able to say, well, we had the conversation. We know where we are and we know who we are. Mary. I just wanted to say I really appreciate having things printed in the leaflet because when we bring guests to the Advent, they're lost in Thank you, Mary. Yeah, I will say that the reason why the Advent is a prayer book parish is not because we like Elizabethan English. Um, because I doubt if I went over to any of your homes, you'd be saying, how art thou uh, to me? Uh, uh, that's, that's, uh, but because it's a, I don't know of a better vehicle for the gospel than the liturgy that we have here at the Advent. But I want us to be very careful to understand that we stand as people in a tradition, not as traditionalists. Uh, as uh, Miroslav Volf said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And so if we get so caught up on what we think is traditional, which dates back circa 1979, beware of any prayer book written during the disco era. Just beware of it. Uh, and the other thing, too, is that uh, what I'm saying uh, have, has been the message from the pulpit and the deans and rectors of past generations here at the Advent. So we're not going in any new direction. We're, we're maintaining the direction we have. And, and I'm glad that it really helps out those who are coming so they can better appreciate uh, and be ministered to in the service. That's huge. Thank you, Mary. Shan. What are your thoughts about it? changing or improving or expanding the men's ministry? Uh, cruises, mainly. Uh, uh. Well, I think, I mean, one of the things that's coming out of the visioning process, a great question, what do we expect of our clergy? What are they supposed to be doing? 
And I think that the clergy uh, need to be sinking into individuals in the parish and discipling them in order that they might disciple other people. And so I think it looks like clergy meeting with individuals in small groups uh, throughout the week. It means uh, talking to people over coffee. Uh, I think it means having uh, building a trellis like what the women have with the discipleship class. Uh, I think it means uh, uh, having retreats. Uh, I think it means, uh, look, the Advent is a very unique place. And, um, you know, the Advent is the kind of place where, you know, you say men's retreat and some people kind of think, well, you know, we already have the wonderful men's hike. Uh, but, you know, some people don't want to walk 30 miles through the woods uh, uh, and hopefully come out the other side. Uh, but what if, you know, just uh, let's really be creative about it. Uh, let's have a father-son golf retreat. And what we do is we bring in somebody like we have it um, the region's weekend uh, or, uh, and we have Bernhard Longer give us testimony at the retreat. And then we have Bible studies throughout the week. Uh, or we have a men's uh, retreat that goes quail hunting. Uh, or does something like that. Men uh, just uh, shooting birds, and, uh, but also spending time in God's, God's word uh, together. I think that the key is just being intentional. I mean, if we're just sitting back and saying, well, we just kind of hope the men will all come together at some point, uh, that's never going to happen. Uh, so I think that the word really is being intentional uh, and, and making ourselves available. And so I would love for anyone who says, hey, I'd love just to grab a cup of coffee with you and hang out. I welcome that. I mean, my watchword is never be caught out of the study in the morning and never be caught in it in the afternoon. Oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to take it back where you look? Yeah. A quick lesson with some words if someone tries to have a side conversation with us about what's uh, happening in Yeah. Okay, so one thing is don't talk about me, talk to me. Uh, the I received, as well as Zach Hicks, an anonymous letter earlier in the week. And, um, and let me tell you what happens with that. If I get a letter, and this is the policy at the Advent, and there's no return address, I look immediately at the signature line. And if there's no signature there, it gets shredded immediately. It doesn't get read uh, because, one, uh, I can't respond to that, uh, and it's just going to eat me up. Uh, and, and, two, quite frankly, it's, it's cowardly. Uh, and so I would say that if you really are a concerned parishioner, please do come and talk to me. I promise I'm not going to bite you. Uh, and we can have our disagreements. And that's something I'm not asking for everyone to agree uh, on anything. Uh, but I do think it's important how we disagree. But I think, too, that if somebody corners you at a cocktail party or something like that where people tend to get real spiritual, <laughs> they... Rather than, I mean, it may be that you get to a point and you say, you know what, you need to talk to Andrew, one of the clergy. But I don't think it's enough to simply punt. I think that it's up to each and every single one of us to say, how can you say that? Like somebody told me that, oh, the Advent is departing from its former glory. Quite frankly, according to our statistics, we've never been more glorious. And so when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, uh, and so I would encourage them uh, to, to stop fixating on certain things and, act and look at the bigger picture. The other thing that I'll say is that, that what the visioning process has done that I didn't expect was we haven't had one of these since Larry Gibson. And so it is for the first time in over 30 years given people a platform to express their distress. And so I've actually heard people say, 20 years ago this bothered me. And I've felt this way ever since then. 
And they've been struggling with that for 20 years, and that's real and needs to be met and ministered to. And that's not to belittle it, but they never had a place where they could actually vent that frustration uh, or say it. Uh, I also, there's a gentleman in our congregation who hammers me about one particular issue over and over and over again. And I found a letter that is over 22 years old from that man to Paul Zoll talking about the same thing. And so the people who are incredibly disgruntled now were disgruntled under Frank Limehouse, were disgruntled under Paul Zoll, and were probably disgruntled under, under Larry Gibson. And, um, but at the same time, uh, if they're on the crew of the ship, you just can't, uh, they, they mean something. And my commitment, uh, even though I, I know that some people would rather me not be the dean and rector, I want them here. I don't want them to leave. Uh, I want the opportunity to be in relationship with them through Jesus Christ and for us to be pooling uh, together. And so part of this visioning process is not to be exclusionary, but actually to be incredibly and overwhelmingly inclusive to say, I'm glad you're saying that. Let's actually talk about that. And also for me to be willing, I might be wrong. In, in addition to, in addition to, if you have a question and we'll talk about visioning, Talking to clergy, we have 30 vestry members. Please read. Vestry members are here. Raise your hand. Please. Yeah, and I know that some of y'all are going to the 11 o'clock, but I don't have to go to the 11, so I'm willing to stay. So, okay, let's be clear. They might want to go to 11, can go, but if you'd like to stay, Andrew's going to be here, and we'll continue on that. So. Or if you want to act like you're going to the 11, but you've got brunch, <laughs> uh, that's fine too. No judgments. No judgments. I like that all the brunchers just got up. I saw that. Oscar, go ahead. Yeah, Dean Gross, I want you to, to address two things, please. First, if you could talk a little bit about the cross-section of people that were involved in the visioning process. That is, you know, people who had been here from birth, people who hadn't, people in the Episcopal tradition and not. There really were all voices there. And then if you could just address head-on this rumor, this idea that the visioning process was pretextual to change worship, you know, how much of the visioning process really was about worship and how much of it was yeah. about so many other things? No, well, let me do it, go in reverse order. One, I think that what we do here on Sunday mornings is probably our greatest strength. Uh, and so why would we want to fiddle with that? Um, in talking with former deans and rectors, at least the past two, uh, some of the changes that we've been made are only because the General Convention allowed us to do that. Uh, they passed a resolution that allowed us to modify certain things. So actually the Episcopal Church has allowed us to do that. And previous deans here uh, have said to me that, that if, they had had the, if they had the ability to do it, they would have done it too. Um, so at least we're in the same boat on that. Um, so it, it really, it, but we are always looking at what we do on Sunday mornings and thinking, is this a vehicle for the gospel? Is God being glorified in it? And so, for instance, one of the things that we changed at the 11 o'clock is that the choir now sings the psalm rather than doing it responsibly. And some people really don't like that. They feel like they're being sung at. Uh, and so, you've got brunch. Go for it. <laughs> uh, so, um, and, and I want people to, to say that and, and, to, and to say, you know, I feel like it's become less worshipful because of, of whatever's, uh, whatever's happened. Uh, but if anything, and, uh, and what I've done at the Advent, I think the proof of the pudding is in the evening, e eating, has been to double down on what we are. So, for instance, the choir. 
Uh, the choir has never been more supported through our budget. They've never sung more uh, in uh, our Sunday services. Uh, we've started a monthly choral evensong. Uh, they wanna, went on tour for the first time in 10 years, and I went with them. Uh, so if anything, I want us to really um, invest and to accentuate that which uh, those things that are our strengths. Uh, when it comes to the cross-section of folks, yeah, we really tried to cast the net wide. So people who have been members for decades, who grew up here, who raised their children here, uh, people who uh, were new but uh, had been here long enough to have the Advent smell on them, we said. You know, so people have been here for three or four years, uh, as well as people who had been involved in leadership uh, across uh, the board. And so what we're really looking for is a representation of our congregation uh, on, in that group. And, uh, and I think that we, uh, we accomplished that. The other thing I'll say too, uh, Oscar, is that uh, I really stepped back and allowed each of these groups to do their work uh, and, and trusted that God uh, would lead them. And, uh, and again, and I feel that, that God has done that. Uh, and, and it's everything that's coming out of the visioning process and will come out of the visioning process uh, is affirming uh, who the Advent who the Advent is. I mean, because if you're committed to the Advent, it means what? You really like the Advent, right? You're not looking to radically change anything. In fact, what you're doing is looking to be a steward of that which uh, God has given us. Catherine. Yeah, I just um, kind of to dovetail or build out upon what you just said. Early on, you said one of the things that came out of the visioning process was that you heard over and over almost unanimously from people a sense of ownership. Right in the Advent, which is huge. So can you tell, talk a little bit about ways that um, through this process we're thinking about honoring that yeah. and channeling it? Yeah. We need to have more of an open door policy when it comes to a number of things. So we have an environment, for better or for worse, that thinks that you have to meet a certain criteria to be involved in the life of the Advent. So. Uh, a great example of this is there was a guy who saw his 15-year-old neighbor being a lector uh, on Sunday morning, and he said, well, no one's ever asked me to read, and there's my 15-year-old neighbor up there reading, and gosh, what does it take to be a, le a lector at the Advent? And I said, literacy. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> That's the requirement that you can read uh, English. And, um, and he was sort of taken back. Uh, so on the one hand, there's an impression that people have that makes them reluctant to put themselves forward. But again, at the same time, I don't think it's enough to say, here are all the opportunities. We need to go out and grab people and say, hey, be a part of this. And we need to be very clear about what those areas of ministry are. So for instance, um, I got an email the other day that said, hey, we're looking for volunteers to teach the kindergarten Sunday school. Now, I understand why we do that over the summer, but I would much rather us go out and find somebody and say, hey, I'd love for you to... And I think it's so important that I said, if another email goes out like that, I'm putting the dean's class down and I'm going to go teach kindergarten Sunday school. Right? And that's also a good trick. If you ever feel burnt out in ministry, go teach kids Sunday school. Uh, it's great. It's great. So I think it's more, and that's where it comes in, that you've got the senior leadership. And I'm not talking just about the clergy, uh, but people who are actually coming in and saying, hey, you know, I've been meeting with you for a couple months. You would be great in teaching first grade Sunday school. 
You know, you've got a real gift in arranging flowers. Would you like to be part uh, of the guild that does the flowers in, in Kramer? Uh, or whatever, whatever it is, um, to be able to help identify those gifts and also to integrate them. And we're not doing a very good job of this because our mentality is one of the bureaucracy. So we think we'll put them in on a committee. Well, that's not, that's not discipleship. That's not discipleship. So I think that, that initiative and creativity and uh, discipling people is, is where, it's, where it's at. I think, you know, we're, we tend to be, I think, staff dependent yes. as opposed to lay dependent. Is that an accurate statement? Yes. So a couple years ago, as when I was, uh, I've been dean for a little bit. Uh, there was a recommendation that we pay uh, the chair of the altar guild. And I almost fell out of my seat. Uh, because there's a propensity in big churches to take away areas of ministry and professionalize them. And, and I, I think that that's, that's criminal. So actually what we need to do is to deprofessionalize ministry and equip people to do the ministry that they've been called to do. If there's a position in the church that is so overwhelming that we think that somebody needs to be paid for it, maybe we need to look at that position and to see, is this really the ministry that it's supposed to be? Um, because, you know, God bless her, a wonderful, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to meet her back in 2002. Uh, Mabel Shepherd, she could do it. Right? She could do it. But, you know, if you're not Mabel Shepherd, I couldn't do it. Uh, so we have to be thinking about, about that as, as well, that the ministry and the person are synced. Just an question to you about Yeah, that's it's con yeah, it's it's hard because th there's a practical dimension to it and there's a theological dimension. Zach did a really good job. So it may be, and I don't think this is funny, but you know, maybe you should listen to Zach's class. You can get online and you can listen to it while you're working out. Uh, quite it's one, it, it, it helps us get out uh, in order to honor our Sunday school hour. Uh, but two, that there's a theological conviction there. Um, that uh, we believe uh, that Cranmer was right and the way that he wrote the prayer book, and that people who wanted to change it later on uh, actually misordered things. So the part that we've moved, we've not gotten rid of it, we've moved it, is the part where, and here we present ourselves, our souls, our bodies, to be a reasonable and living sacrifice unto thee. Do we present ourselves as living sacrifices before we come to the table? No, it's, it's after we've received the bread and the wine, that we then pray that, and we alternate that prayer with the prayer that we traditionally use uh, seasonally. So if anything, I think that we're taking advantage of the breadth of uh, the prayer book tradition. For those who like the old right one position, um, I think that there's room for disagreement. And so we use that prayer at the 730 service. And, uh, and so we're not saying 
all y'all are wrong, uh, but we're honoring our differing opinions by allowing that at the 7.30. And so, but I think it has less to do with theology and more with people feeling like it's different, that it's truncated, that it's, it's, it's clunky. But those are things that no matter what we do to the liturgy, people always feel that way. I mean, that's what people felt when we switched from the 28 to the 79 and what people will feel. Uh, on average, when we, um, when we change prayer books in the Episcopal Church, we lose 100,000 people in pews. That's average Sunday attendance. That's not members. We, our, our average Sunday attendance as a denomination shrinks by 100,000 every time we change prayer books. Uh, and we're about to do it again, which means that our average Sunday, the Episcopal Church average Sunday attendance will be hovering around half a million, which is T-tiny. Uh, and I have no reason to believe because that's been the case throughout the history of the Episcopal Church, no matter where we stood theologically. So I don't want to dishonor somebody. And I, I, I think, I mean, I've owned up to that. Because if somebody has done something, and look, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. Coffee mentioned he was a cradle Episcopalian. I am too. I've never known anything different. And so when that's all you've known, and then somebody changes, I can see why, because I feel it too, how that's perceived as judgment, that people feel judged if they think, well, I've done it this way my whole life, and now the clergy or whoever think that they know better. Um, but what I would appeal to is, Yes, I understand that, and I'm sorry for that, but what I'd also say is that we're not saying that we know better. In fact, what we say is that the shoulders of those whom we stood upon leading up to 1979, for almost 500 years, they knew better than we. And so we're not appealing to our own positions or intellect. Uh, we're, we're appealing to a gospel mandate and conviction that Anglicanism has had and still continues to have around the globe, with few exceptions. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Another question. Before you get the impression it's all dissension, there are comments and concerns that we're, we're taking in going through the process. What has been very gratifying is to see out of that, though, there's great unanimity and law for preaching and teaching the good news and how we do it here is important to carry that forward. So it, 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 this, the team working on this has great unanimity in supporting that. And so there's, there's a very positive... Uh, sense of the direction we want to go with this church um, that is consistent with where we've been. So just because there are some concerns doesn't mean it's all. It doesn't make the sense that it's all dissension. It's a great deal of unanimity on that. So, but but there are the legitimate things we need to talk through, and that's because we care deeply about this. Yeah, let me. Maybe it's good to give you an update of where we are on the timeline. The vestry has spent to uh, spent an evening, uh, two hours plus, th almost three hours, over three hours. Uh, talking about the, uh, what's coming out of the visioning process, the, the, um, the, the different items of principles coming out of each of the different buckets, communications, and all that stuff. And, uh, and we're going to have a two-hour vestry meeting at our next meeting uh, to continue that conversation. And if we need to keep talking about it, so be it. Uh, but that conversation with 30 people plus the clergy uh, that has not been marked by dissension. Uh, it's been marked by excitement. And so, quite frankly, I'm very excited to roll this kind of stuff out uh, for the congregation to see uh, so that we don't get fixated uh, on certain things. Because, again, what I hear a lot of people say uh, that they're afraid, but they're afraid of something that actually isn't there. There's nothing tangible to be uh, uh, afraid of. 
So I'm not going to, as I've said, uh, you know, start wearing my wife's jeans and walking out with gel in my hair. Um, uh, but I will say the same people who are afraid of having smoke machines in the church uh, would love to have incense. Uh, so I think that's ironic. Fran. say another mark of humility that I have, um, but something that's actually humbled me is I've realized this is really where my age comes into play, uh, because some of the things that I've done and said that have rattled some people's cages, um, Frank Limehouse did and, or said, and Paul Zoll said and did, and, um, and it, but I think because of my age, people think that because I'm their child's age, they can ring my bell, um, but I think it's also compounded by the fact that they've seen a lot of rectors deans come and go. You know, they, under Frank, you know, Frank, God bless him, had a shelf life. And, you know, I mean that they knew that Frank had a mandatory retirement date that was approaching, and, and they knew. And I think that what has compounded some people's angst is they know that I'm going to be doing their funeral, that, that I'm probably the last dean they will see. And so I think that that, that has troubled some people. Here, Jane. I want to encourage you for what you're doing, and I encourage all of us to pray about it, because what we want, what you want, what those of us who love the Lord want, is we want His way Amen. in this place, not our way, His way. And don't forget, his way was to birth the Savior of the world in a stable, not in a fine hospital mm-hmm. with an incubator or whatever. His way is not our way. Mm-hmm. And we have got to. He says over, Jesus says over and over and over in the New Testament, pray. Ask, and you will be given. And we all know that. The devil does not want us praying because he knows it works. Mm. So we find everything to do before we pray. But we must ask his will in this And once I heard somebody say, and it really affected me. I mean, I grew up in the church, and I bet I'm the oldest one in here. But anyway, if Jesus was to walk, were to walk into the church and process down the aisle as proper Episcopal Hebrews, we would all stand up. We should fall on our face. Mm. And we've got to do this because 
he has a purpose for this body of Christ in downtown Birmingham. Yeah. Amen. And we've added the, added that as a pra- the prayer is actually one of the new, a priority that was added along the way. We have been, we need to pray his life, his life in the heart of Birmingham. Well, that's a good good word to close on. Amen. Well, if y'all can stay, we can reheat some sausage biscuits, but I'm sure that y'all, uh, that's a good word to close on. Indeed, let's pray before we leave, and uh, thank you, Sarah Jane, for closing us on a good word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we give ourselves over to you, that thy will be done, and Lord, that you would move our hearts in a place that we would uh, go from worrying uh, to trusting, uh, that you are indeed in control. Uh, Lord, where we're amiss, that you would write us, but Lord, where we are uh, walking in your steps, that you would confirm it deep in our hearts, that above all, uh, we might uh, behold your glory and fall before you as ransomed children. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.